This brings us to the next section, the third and final missionary journey of Paul. Chapters 18, verse 24, through chapter 21, verse 16. In this section, the narrative turns to Ephesus, an extremely important city that Paul had wanted to visit on his second missionary journey, but had been prevented from doing by Yahweh. Ephesus was the capital land, capital and chief commercial center of the providence of Asia. It stood near the coast of the Aegean Sea, This was not a brief visit among many places like in previous journeys. Rather, Paul would stay in Ephesus for three years to establish the Christian faith in this region. Ephesus is where he had the longest stable period of ministry without trial or expulsion. Here is where he most fully carried out his commission to be the witness to both the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jewish community in Ephesus was the largest in the area. Syncretism had affected both the Jewish and Christian communities there. Syncretism means collecting a bunch of different ideas from different religions and putting them together into a new kind of vague kind of idea. And communities there both dabbled in syncretism had affected in the magical arts. This is the last place Paul ministered to as a free man before his arrest and trials. Witherington says this, It becomes apparent at the close of the reading of Acts chapter 18, verse 24 and 2038, that it is in various ways not all that useful to speak of a third missionary journey. For one thing, we are told at 1910 that Paul was in Ephesus for at least two additional years after already spending three months teaching in the synagogue there. The material we find in this section of Acts focuses almost entirely on Ephesus and its immediate in, in, in Verens. Even when Paul leaves Ephesus to strengthen churches in Macedonia, Greece, and elsewhere in Asia, the section draws to a close by recording a speech to the Ephesian elders in nearby Miletus. As Tanhill has rightly stressed, Ephesus is not just another stop in a series. It is the Paul's last major place of a new mission work as a free man. The fact that Paul's farewell speech will be addressed to the Ephesian elders is a further indication of the special importance of Ephesus. One must assume that Luke is reliant on Ephesian traditions for what he records in these chapters. It may well be that he received not only these materials, but also his information about what transpired in Corinth from Priscilla and Aquila. This would explain his knowledge of the story that begins this Ephesian chronicle which does not involve Paul. Even so, this story in 1824-28, through 28, when compared with 1 Corinthians 1-4, through 4, sheds considerable light on the latter text, and the text, latter text sheds some light on the, what we find here without suggesting that Luke knew 1 Corinthians. This isn't really a missionary journey. Most scholars consider this not a missionary journey because, yes, he is going on missions to Ephesus, but he spends pretty much the entire time in Ephesus. So this isn't a journey from city to city to city in the way that we typically think of journeys. We come to where he's going to camp out for a long time and probably really begins to see Ephesus as the center of the church in Asia. So where Antioch has become the center of the church and all of its dealings in Syria the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. He's looking to Ephesus to being the capital of the northern 
and Grecian part of the church there. And then his hope is to eventually go off to Rome and make Rome the capital of the western part of the Mediterranean for the church. And that is kind of what Paul might be seeing here as he picks Ephesus. And this is where he wanted to go along, and now is finally able to go there for whatever reason. Verse 24 of chapter 18. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, arrived in Ephesus. He was an eloquent speaker, well-versed in scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and with great enthusiasm he spoke and taught accurately the facts about Jesus, although he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak out fearlessly in the synagogues. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. And when Apollos wanted to cross over to Acacia, the brothers encouraged him, and he wrote to the disciples to welcome. And when he arrived, assisted greatly those who had believed by grace. For he refuted the Jews vigorously and public debate, demonstrating from the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. He makes himself to Ephesus. And he meets Apollos. Apollos was a Hellenistic Jew. So he was Jewish by biology and birth, but he was very Hellenistic. And he lived in Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt was a very phenomenal city as far as wealth and power, but also knowledge. It was like the Athens of the Eastern world when it came to knowledge. And of course, the famous library who had converted to Christianity. The way of the Lord is another description of the Christian faith. Um, we see this in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, 16, verse 17, 18, 26, 19, 9, 23, chapter 22, verse 4, chapter 24, verse 14, and verse 22. And even though that may have not stuck out in your mind as you read through these things, it's frequently used of just another description of Christianity. He had a thorough understanding of the First Testament. In fact, one of the predominant, most popular views of who authored Hebrews is Apollos. So he was very well versed in the First Testament. He was very good at communicating. He was very passionate and enthusiastic when he preached as well. He had the same pattern that Paul did, where he would go to the synagogue. But it says that he did not know about the baptism of Jesus. Well, actually, it specifically says he did not know about that. He only knew about the baptism of John which implies that he did not know about the baptism of Jesus. And then Priscilla and Aquila had to correct him on some theological beliefs. But we're never told what exactly does it mean that he only knew of the baptism of John and what did they correct him on. And obviously it must have not been something incredibly heretical because he's never called out for that. The, the, the Acts never has a problem calling out people for heresy or improper beliefs, that kind of stuff. So it seems that whatever he was corrected on wasn't something that he was preaching wrong. It wasn't that he was being heretical or getting some theology wrong. It's that it seems more that it wasn't complete. That there were some pieces of the puzzle that he did not quite have. Everything he was preaching was accurate, but he, he only knew about certain things. And he hadn't finished the puzzle yet as he preached. And the fact that he's so enthusiastically and so willingly accepts the correction 
shows that this isn't about heresy. When you meet heretics in the Bible, they're heretics. They have agendas. It's self-serving. It's, it's not. It's not. Um, oh, sorry, I just missed that part of the Bible. It's usually, yeah, I knew about that, but I don't care. So this is what they're correcting him on. It shows you that both of them work as a couple. Every time they're, they're they usually mentioned, they work as a couple, and they both correct them together. And they're both rebuking him together. Well, not rebuking I'm not going to use that word. They're both correcting or adding or helping him understand his teaching together. And it shows how actively involved they are as well in teaching and preaching and, and maintaining the theology of Christianity that you, we always expect Paul to be the one to go and to do that. But it's them that see it. And they're the ones that take the, they're bold and confident in correcting it. What it seems is that he did not know about Christian baptism. First, that some have concluded that he knew only some things about Jesus, but was not yet a Christian because he had not been baptized in the name of Jesus and therefore did not have the Holy Spirit. So some would say, well, if he only knew about the baptism of John, then that means that he was not baptized through Christ, which would have brought the Holy Spirit because John didn't bring the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he's not really a Christian. That, that's, that's, I have serious problems with that. However... This is an assumption. This is an assumption of a lack of data, which is very dangerous, about how baptism... It's also an assumption about how baptism and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit works. Remember, we often think like, oh, you accept Christ and then you get baptized. Or you get baptized and the Holy Spirit comes unto you. Or you accept Christ and you lay hands on you and the Holy Spirit comes and you get baptized. Right? We, we have this idea of how baptism works... But what we've seen so far in the book of Acts is it doesn't fit a pattern now. Okay, normally we say, accept Christ, the Holy Spirit came upon you, now get baptized. So, but that's not the pattern. There's no systematic way of doing things. The church is in its beginnings. Like, remember, the Holy Spirit is a brand new thing to them. They don't know, like, oh, you do this and this and this and this and this. And we've seen every possible pattern of combination that you can possibly see. Laying on hands of the Holy Spirit. Baptism. Baptism. Laying on hands of the Spirit. Holy Spirit. Baptism. Right? Like all these different combinations. So you're making a serious assumption about, well, if he hasn't had this, then this hasn't happened. You can't say that. You can't say that, period. And you definitely cannot say that in the book of Acts. Because there is no church tradition yet firmly established. Early Christians did not have a universally recognized approach of discipling people. Likewise, Luke, is po- Luke never states that they shared the gospel with him and that he believed as in following the story. So there's no mention. It's very clear that every time they encounter somebody who's not saved, that they preach the gospel. And then we're told, at least somewhere in there, that they got baptized or that the Spirit of God came upon them or that they believed. Nowhere does it mention that he believed that the Spirit of God comes upon him, that suggesting this happens. He probably willingly got baptized because he wanted to be connected to this Jesus and his baptism. There was a movement of John. John's movement and his preaching went all over the world before Jesus. And it actually lasted all the way up into the 300s AD. Followers of John the Baptizer and that kind of stuff. And so it could be that he just didn't know 
that Jesus is also doing his own baptism or that he that there is a baptism under Christ's name. And so probably he was preaching the gospel, teaching about Christ, people were being saved, but then he was baptizing in the way that John did or the way that John would have done, which is nothing wrong because John was a precursor to Jesus. Jesus John baptized Jesus. So he probably just decided to get baptized under Jesus because he realized that Jesus also did baptisms. And he wound now wanted to be connected. There's, there's no hint in any kind of a way that he needed to be saved or that the gospel had preached him or he needed to accept it. The point is that he humbly received instruction and adjusted his preaching accordingly. He went on to Acacia and continued vigorously preaching the gospel and continuously to reason from Scripture that Christ is Jesus. Now, this is important because what we should see here is that we see other Christians being willing to be corrected. We see that this is a part of the early church and that he's accepting this. And we see people out there. What The other thing that's important is Paul is not the only person spreading the gospel. And we've seen this with Philip. And it's obvious that Paul's gone certain places and churches are already there, especially in Rome. The church is already fully developed in Rome. Um, by the time Paul gets there. But Paul's not the only person out there preaching. He's not the only person being with, with passion and boldness and confidence. He's not the only one having incredible great success. The next couple of verses make it, I think, emphasize even more that Apollos was saved and that he had the Holy Spirit. Because we're going to see a second encounter here. In chapter 19, verse 1, it says, While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul went through the inland regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples there, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they replied, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul said, Into what then were you baptized? Into John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John baptized with baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who had come after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now there were about twelve men in all. Now this makes a clear distinction between these two events. Because what you have is Apollos, who was aware of Paul John's teaching, and even the fact that John had proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah and that you need to follow him and accept him but was doing it in a very John kind of a way. And so Quill and Priscilla came along and said, oh, there's, you don't, da-da-da-da, whatever it was. And that's it. Know that he believed. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit. There's none of that. Now we come to another group of people who are not preaching. But they've been baptized under John and then probably left Jerusalem and went off back to their homes and to Ephesus and had no idea that this Jesus popped up on the scene later and then brought a new way. So when they were asked, now we're specifically getting mentions, they had not believed in Jesus. They did not have the Holy Spirit. The fact that this is specifically, they have a similarity there, John's baptism. And one does not mention belief or the need to believe or the Holy Spirit but the other one's specifically saying, do you believe? Did you have the Holy Spirit? No, we didn't know about that. Well, did you know what John preached? Yeah. Well, this is what he preached, and this is who he was, and he came. Oh, and then they accept, they believe, and they have the Holy Spirit come upon them. And this makes it very clear that Apollos was a Christian. 
Because once again, we have them specifically pointing this stuff out. Luke continually separates the two experiences of the conversion of the person and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in order to highlight the fulfillment of Jesus' promises that he would send the Holy Spirit to be in the believers. We don't really make a distinction between being converted and the Holy Spirit coming in you. For us, the vast majority of denominations believe that these are simultaneous events. But Luke is emphasizing a distinction between the two in order to emphasize that this is a different kind of believing than what the Jews have just done their entire life, and that to emphasize that Jesus said the Spirit would come in John chapter 14, and specifically at the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and that that, that's happening. And so he's not saying that these are two distinct events. He's just separating them as distinct comments so that you see that Christ's prophecy is coming true and being fulfilled. Verse 8. So Paul entered the synagogue and spoke out fearlessly for three months, addressing and convincing them about the kingdom of God. But when some were stubborn and refused to believe, reviling the way before the congregation, he left them and took the disciples with him, addressing them every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so all who lived in the providence of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So at some point, after about a year, Paul is finally completely rejected by the Jews in Ephesus. And he then moves on to the Greeks, and he finds the home of Tyrannus and the hall, um, the classrooms, and he begins to preach there. We don't know who this guy is. Was he an incredibly generous man who was opening up his classrooms for Paul to preach there? Most likely, a lot of scholars believe that Tyrannus was educating and teaching people during the day and then said, hey, I've got an empty building the rest of the evening and whatever, and the weekends, or whatever, and you can use them when I'm not there. Or maybe he allowed Paul to have a few classrooms that were empty and not being used. So Tyrannus is sympathetic towards this, or at least a believer, whether he's a Jew who's converted or a Greek that's converted. We don't know. Um, but he's allowed to be there. And then he spends the next two years there. So Luke, or sorry, Paul literally has his own classrooms now. He has a classrooms where people are coming to him. And if you're teaching here, you're now teaching. This is now turning less and less from preaching and converting people to actual teaching and having classrooms and having regular students who are getting discipled, especially when you're in the exact same place every single day for two years. Now, that doesn't mean nobody's converting, but it seems to be not just pure missionary, go out, evangelize, and move on work. It is becoming discipleship. It is becoming teaching. So the question is, is it okay, proper to say that he was not just an evangelist, but he was also a theologian and maybe even a teacher who's taught bringing everything together and teaching the Word of God? Yeah, absolutely. Over and over and over again says that he reasoned with them from scriptures, making connections between the First Testament and the Second Testament, or in debating with them and proving from scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So yes, I remember he disappeared for about... Um, several months or three years in Arabia and after he accepted Christ on the way to Damascus probably like going back through the first testament again and saying now with a Jesus perspective so yes and I would say this is what we're all supposed to be 
if you're evangelizing, you should know your scriptures well, and you should be able to teach them and make connections and, and dots. And if you're teaching, you should know your scriptures well, and you should be able to, to connect dots and evangelize and all that kind of stuff. And, and when I was growing up, um, my mentors in the church growing up kind of pounded into my head that if you're a Christian, you're automatically a teacher and a leader. You may not be a, a prominent teacher in the church, commissioned by the church to teach, you may not be a leader that's going to be an elder or a pastor in the church, but you're a Christian. You're a follower of Christ. You're automatically a leader to the world. You're a leader to somebody as you're discipling and teaching, and you're automatically a teacher because that's first and foremost. And remember, like, this should have always been the goal of every church in America. But because we got so committed to saving souls, we, we, as in the American church, I don't mean everybody here in every church. I always mean that. I always mean just the American church as a whole. There's that quote that we've been so focused on saving people's souls that we forgot the mind, and now we're losing their mind and their souls. And that's why deconstructionism is becoming a huge thing. And unlike things in the past, I don't think this is a fad. I think this is a result of many, many decades of the church failing to truly disciple and truly help people understand the scriptures and truly because a lot of the deconstructions videos that I've watched my goodness if you, I could give you five books that would just blow all the thoughts that you have out of the water of why you think Christianity is false and why you left the faith and it just shows incredible shallowness I mean the most famous ones right now um, who are the best videos I've ever seen on helping you understand their thought process is Rhett and Link from Good Mythical Morning and um, they take you through their long two-year process of going through this stuff. And they were working for Campus Crusade for Christ in the Bible Belt. And when I listen to them talk, it's like, you obviously have no understanding of archaeology. You have no understanding of the Old Testament, the First Testament, how they fit together. And, and you have no understanding of how the Bible works with evolution and that kind of stuff. And I don't mean they're compatible. I mean just how it refutes things. Like, I listen and my heart goes out to them. And, um, but it's just like, and I'm not knocking Campus Crusade Christ for all, because I know all training places are not equal. But how in the world did you get through that much training and go out and preach the word for that many years? And your wives did it with you. And then you deconstruct your faith. And then you deconstruct your wife's faith. And now you're deconstructing your children's faith when there are so many good books and there are books written by scientists and stuff that could have easily answered questions and the books that they quote that they read are like those are the wrong books who pointed you there so I, this is what and I, every video I see after another one is just you just don't really know how to think biblically and you don't understand the word of God and, and that could have just simply been solved by just reading through the Bible every year I mean, I don't believe that you need professional classes. Um, I, I do believe classes help you in understanding culture and that kind of stuff, but the Holy Spirit is sufficient enough. You just read through the Bible every single year, or even if it takes you two years. Like That's all you really have to do, to just multiple times. And so, yeah, I think this is something very, very, very lacking in the American church as a whole. This idea of just knowing the Bible, knowing theology, being able to dots. Especially when we live in a day and age, I can't tell you how many times my students, I ask a lot of questions. So what's the connection here? What's the connection there? So he's doing this here and here and here. What's the significance? 
and I do a lot of hand holding and then a lot of releasing them and hand holding again, a lot of releasing. And I can't tell you how many, like, just tell us the answer, Mr. Bacher. I'm like, no. There's a time that I will tell you the answer because this is deep and thick. But there's other times like, you've been with me for three semesters. You should be able to start connecting dots. And many of them can, don't get me wrong. But there's still some that are just like, lazy. I love them to death, but they're absolutely intellectually lazy. I've been told by a couple of churches, including my church, that there are some people who complain when the pastor's message goes just a little too long. Um, do you know in other countries they'll stand there for three or four hours just listening to a sermon? Uh, and then I've also been told that sometimes when the pastor gets a little too deep and a little too intellectual, they complain. And, and I've even heard our pastor say, now, I'm sorry, but we're going to go deep here. Or like, like, God love our pastors for the willingness to do that, but shame on the people. Like, no, no, no. Like, that is not what you get from the Bible. Have you read Romans? It's incredibly difficult. Hebrews, it's dense. Like, we are supposed to be the leaders in thinking, and we used to be. We used to be. Yes, yes, this is what we should be doing. And I know that's easy for me to say as a Bible teacher, but that's why I'm a Bible teacher, because this is what we're all supposed to be doing. This is what we're all supposed to be doing. Now, after that soapbox, why he was preaching here during this time period, this is the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. This is the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And he wrote 1 Corinthians around 54 to 55 AD. This is the first, and I, I want to mention this because this is the first text that is written. Most people believe that Corinthians predates the Gospels, even Mark. Mark is the first gospel ever written, and that this is the first writing. And what's interesting is the first thing that's written and put in the Bible is actually a letter that is rebuking the sexual perversion and disobedience of Christians in Corinth and not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's already been in Corinth. He saw all of it. He's left. He's hearing news that the Christians have not left their immoral behavior behind. Not all of them but a, a, a good enough group that he rebukes the entire church. We know for a fact that he's already written a letter to them. We don't know what it is because in 1 Corinthians, he talks about my previous letter to you. So that means there has to be at least a letter before that that he's written. So that means that that letter even predates this. And then there's things in Corinthians where he's pretty much proclaiming that Jesus is the resurrection, that this is a well-known statement that everybody embraces. And so what this is significant is a lot of people have claimed that Christianity doesn't become fully well-developed until, like, until Nicene, and 100 years later or something like that. But what we have in 55 in Corinthians, and at this time the gospel is already being spread, is that it is pretty much universally accepted that Jesus is the God-man, the only way to Christ, and only through his resurrection can we be saved? And then our resurrection will follow after that one day. And there's a second coming of Christ. And all this is clearly the of Corinthians. And every scholar, this is so God. There's a lot of books that are debated on when it's dated. But nobody debates 
the date of Corinthians, which just secures even more that Christianity, the way that we know it, theologically speaking at the core, was already firmly developed by 54 by, easily, well circulated, the theology, by 54 AD, which shows you that this isn't something that Paul came up with on his own, and this isn't something that grew over time, gradually. And so this is about this time in Ephesus where he's camped down, he's hearing things about Corinth, and he begins to write letters to them. 